Our Old Testament reading this morning is Exodus chapter 6, verses 13 through 27. It is a little odd and quite difficult to read, but I will do my best. This is at a time when the people of Israel are still in slavery in Egypt, and God has told Moses he's going to use him to bring them out, but they're still not out yet. And so we're in that time period uh, when we get to Exodus 6, verses 13 through 27. But before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us. And God, we do ask that you would help us this morning to hear your word. God, we pray that you would help us uh, to take seriously what you have said. God, I pray that you'd help us to listen with ears and minds and hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 6, verses 13 through 27. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi, according to their records, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon by clans were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi, according to their records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Izhar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uzael were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elishaba, daughter of Amenadab, and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These were the Korahite clans. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was this, Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. This same Moses and Aaron. Our gospel reading for this morning is Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. This one is easier to read, but I think it was even more difficult for the disciples of Jesus to understand. Mark 10, 32 to 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we have been 
reading in the book of Revelation for the past 10 weeks or so, and where we are now in the book of Revelation is actually what I, and not just me, others besides me, consider to be the heart of the whole book of Revelation. And so if there is any part of the whole book that you really want to make sure that you spend some time in and that you go over again and again because it will help you as it relates to the whole book, but it also will help you as it relates to everything in your life and in the world. It's Revelation 4 and 5. This is like the heart of the book of Revelation, which is the final book of the whole Bible. The whole thing has been telling one big story, and the book of Revelation is kind of that that final chapter of the whole thing. And in this, you're wondering, well, where, where is this all leading up to? What has this all been about? And what it's all been about has been God's relationship with his people from start to finish. That's, that's what it's always been about. And, of course, how that has been a broken relationship right from the very beginning and how Jesus is the one that was then promised from the beginning who has then come and done what nobody else could do to bring us back to God and restore that relationship. And how we're now looking forward to is the way that that he will not only restore our relationship with God, but do so in a way that is permanent and final as he restores the whole of the creation. So this is is kind of the whole Bible in a nutshell. Granted, we sort of skipped over a few bits here and there. (laughs) But that's the, the basic story the whole thing is telling. And in Revelation is where we get this final chapter And as I've mentioned every week when we're talking about Revelation, it is the last book of the Bible for a reason. It's because it's got all the other books, the 65 books that come before it as prerequisites. You want to make sure you understand what they've been saying and how they've been saying it before you get to Revelation or else you're very likely to make a mess of the book of Revelation because it is a book that is communicated in strange vision language. And so you get these bizarre images. It's like, what in the world could that mean? And almost every single thing in Revelation is referencing something from earlier in the Bible, usually the Old Testament. So if you don't know those books and you go, wow, this is a strange image. I wonder what it can mean. And then you just start making wild guesses. And people do this. And some of them make a good living doing it. But that's not what it's about. What it's about is tying the whole story together. And so if when you see these strange images, you start going, okay, well, where, where have we seen that before in the Bible? You're much more likely to come up with what this vision is actually about rather than just uh, making it totally something else. Anyway, so where we are now is Revelation chapter 4, 1 through 11. What we have already seen is John, who is on an island of Patmos, who's in exile because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's out there. And he has this vision that Jesus gives him. It's a vision also of Jesus. And this is going to be a vision that is not just for John personally, but that is a message to the churches and to the whole church kind of at all times and in all places. But specifically, there are messages to each of these seven churches that are kind of right there around him in Asia Minor. And so that's what we've been looking at. We looked at the vision he had initially of seeing Jesus as the priest and the king and the one who is both human and divine and the one who knows his church, knows what's going on with people. We saw that vision first. Then we get into the messages to each of these seven churches. and We walked kind of through each of those bit by bit and saw the way that Jesus does know what's going on with his people, with his church, and 
how for some of that, you know, the message is hold on, keep doing what you're doing. For others, it was you're not doing what you need to be doing, and you've got to make some changes and fast. That was chapters two and three. As I mentioned, we get to chapter four, and it's four and five, kind of the heart of the whole thing. I'll tell you how it reads, and then we'll talk about. Uh, well, we're just going to look at chapter four today. Hold off on chapter five. We're going to look at what it says first. You're going to hear these strange images and go ahead, do your best to picture in your mind kind of what this might look like. But then we'll talk about what this is all about and how this is significant for us after we read. Let's read. John says, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In, the, in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Pretty cool, right? (laughs) Also, maybe a little confusing. Uh, Some of the things, if you're really picturing this in your mind, uh, you may immediately come up with some crazy questions like how did these creatures fly if they have eyes under their wings and like is how do they how do they fly and see at the same time that seems weird that just seems weird what kind of a creature is this and there are a lot of these kinds of things so let's talk briefly about visionary imagery and then into kind of how I view this whole passage so one um you remember in Genesis when Joseph has a dream of what's going to happen. And he has this dream, and this is early days with Joseph, where he has this dream that there are these 11 sheaves of grain that stand up and like bow down to this other sheaf of grain. It's the brother's sheaves are all bound down to his. And it's like, well, that's, that's interesting. But what does it mean? And what it doesn't mean is that at some point in the future, there are going to be these uh, 11 sheaves of grain that all gather around and all bow down. And so you don't have like the brothers and uh, the whole family looking through the fields going, well, where are the, where are the sheaves of grain that are going to bow down? And, or 
maybe there's going to be, maybe what this means is that God is going to send some crazy weather event where the wind is blowing from every direction because how else do you get the sheaves to all bow down to the one? That's not what they're looking for, is it? Instead, they get mad at Joseph, <laughs> the one who had this dream. And why is it they're mad? It's because they understand what this is all about. That what this is about is not, let's go find some sheaves that are bound and bound down, but that they are representative of the brothers, all of their hard work, the fruits of their labor, and food in general. Like This is what these sheaves represent, and how all of that together comes together in an event where they're bowing down to their brother Joseph. And you go, that's an awful lot of stuff to capture in just this one brief image. Yes, it is. That's <laughs> Images are very powerful that way. And, um, and then you have, so that's why they get mad is they're thinking, oh, you're saying that we're going to bow down to you? I don't think so. Well, then you go a little bit later. He has another dream, and it's the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. And you go, okay, so now we've got this whole separate thing that's going to happen? No, it's an expansion on the first one. And the uh, expansion is now we're including mom and dad who are also going to bow down, but also it's expanded out to where it's not just about this family anymore. It's also, this is expanded to take on cosmic significance. That when these brothers are bowing down to him, it means something kind of universal. Like it has an application that extends way beyond just the here and now with these particular people. And that's exactly what we see as you read the rest of the book of Genesis, that there's a famine and the brothers have to come and Joseph's been raised up as a leader in Egypt and they come and they end up bowing down to him. And we see that this does have huge significance as he becomes the one who then is pointing us by what he's doing to Jesus himself, the one who is the savior of all. And so uh, we see this all the way back in Genesis, that you have these, this visionary kind of language. Well, we see the same kind of thing in the visions that John is relating to us with these strange images. And we go, okay, well, but what do they mean? <laughs> what is that then about? And how does that relate to the world in general? How does that relate to us? And that's where next we go to the book of Job. And I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Job, but here's kind of the, the general overall structure of the book of Job. You have, in early chapters, there's this kind of meeting in heaven, and God is ruling, but then you've got Satan who's sort of making this uh, proposition, and, oh, yeah, sure, Job, he serves you, but only because you do good things for him. He sure wouldn't if you did bad things. Like, if there was, if there was anything bad in his life, there were troubles in his life, he would not. He'd turn away from you like that. I was like, no, he wouldn't. And so sets off the rest of the book of Job, or most of it anyway, where then we see Job going through an incredible amount of loss in a short period of time. And then most of the book of Job is his friends coming and comforting him. (laughs) Sometimes their words are more comforting, often more blaming and saying, yeah, you probably did something to deserve this which we know, reading it, having already read the first chapter, no, he didn't deserve this. That's not what this is about at all. And then at the very end, you see God show up. And you think as you're reading the whole book, okay, God's going to show up and he's going to explain what happened in chapter one. And he's going to say, no, you don't understand. Here's what this was all really about. And what's crazy is he shows up at the end. God shows up in this storm, (laughs) And he says to Job, basically, 
who do you think you are <laughs> to question me? Would you uh, discredit my justice or discredit me to justify yourself? Something like that. Oh, and then he goes through all the, you know, were you there when I created this and this and this and this? Of course not. And so we get to the end of the book of Job and we're like, man, Job never knew. He never knew why this had happened. That was the question looming over the whole book. Why is this happening? And he's never given that answer. But what he is given is this relationship with the God of the universe who says, whether you know why or not, you know that I am powerful enough to do something about this. And you do know that I am someone who cares deeply for you. So if I have allowed this, it is because I have allowed it. And therefore, there must be a reason, whether you know it or not. And so the invitation to Job uh, implicitly and the invitation throughout all of Scripture for all of us has always been, do we trust God? Do we trust him when things are good? Do we trust him when things are bad? Do we trust him when we can see what the next steps are? Do we trust him when we can't see what the next steps are? Do we trust him when we understand or think we understand why something is happening? Do we trust him when we have no idea why something's happening? And we see this replayed over and over again all throughout the Bible, don't we? I think that in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we see kind of this combination of the beginning of the book of Job and the end of the book of Job kind of stuck together. And we get to see it. We get to see what's going on in the throne room of heaven where God is ruling over the world. And, and you think about these churches that John has just been writing to and how they are experiencing in the Roman Empire these two ways of being Christian. One, or the <laughs> two different difficulties with being Christian in the Roman Empire. One is to just accommodate all the Roman stuff and just be like, well, I'll just, I don't know, I'll just, I'll just be Roman first and kind of put my Christianity second. And where they... Where they can kind of work together, that's great. And where they don't, I'll just, I don't know, we'll, we'll go the Roman way. That's, that's the easier road in our culture today. The other side of it being, no, I'm going to choose to be Christian, whether that is the easy way or not. <laughs> and even if that means suffering and persecution and hardship. And that was certainly on the rise at this time, that people were being persecuted and treated harshly for being Christian. And so it's in churches like this where they would be tempted to think maybe God doesn't know what's going on. Maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't care. But we just saw in chapters two and three over and over and over again, this message where Jesus is saying to the church, I do know what's going on. I do very much care what's going on. And so then the next question, of course, is, well, can he do anything about it? Is God actually ruling over this world or has he completely left it and left us abandoned? And in chapter four, we get the answer to this. We get to see a God on the throne ruling over uh, the universe. And actually the rest of the book of Revelation, we're going to see that God is ruling from his throne and speaking and things happen just like in Genesis chapter 1, 
where then God said, let there be light, and there was light. What he says goes, that he is still in charge, and that he is still the king over all. And that's what all these strange images are really getting us to. And so you see, uh, he sees someone sitting on this throne and has this appearance that's calling us straight back to stuff that we see in Exodus. He has surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They're dressed in white, had crowns of gold on their heads. And these seem to be uh, representative of, you know, 12 is, or 24 is 12 plus 12. So you can look at the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles in the New Testament, and you say, so it appears to be that these are the representatives of all of God's people from all of time. Of course, dressed in white and having crowns of gold on their heads, which is exactly what we see in chapters 2 and 3 for those who, will, uh, who do overcome who actually stick with Jesus through all the temptations of the world and through all the persecutions of the world, who stick with Jesus. As those who overcome, this is what it's going to be like for you. And so here we see that. So it seems representative of that. Also, you have this imagery of uh, thunderstorm kinds of things, lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder. It takes us right back to Mount Sinai and how God revealed himself uh, to the Israelites when they come out of slavery in Egypt. We see this also in multiple places throughout Scripture of God coming to his people in some sort of a storm. In front of the throne, seven lamps, that are seven spirits of God. We talked about this before, this taking us back to Isaiah 11, of the fullness of God's spirit. In front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass. We're seeing multiple things here that seem like temple imagery. And I will tell you this sea of glass thing. There are a couple different ways to understand it, and I think, fascinatingly, whichever way you take this particular thing, it kind of comes back to mean the same thing. <laughs> so I'll tell them to you briefly. One is that the sea, like the ocean, like the Mediterranean Sea at the time, would have been an image that people used to talk about chaos because you didn't really know what was down there. You couldn't see very far. You didn't have ways to really look down there. Scuba gear had not yet been invented. And so it was, that was chaos. And so what this would look like, you know, if the sea is smooth and clear, it's like all that turmoil, all the chaos has been stilled. And that's not that anymore. And also that you could see into it. You can look all the way to the bottom. You ever been to water that's so clear you can see all the way to the bottom? Well, when you can see all the way to the bottom, you know there's not a monster hiding down there, <laughs> right? And so it could be that kind of a thing. But there's also, if you're thinking about this in temple imagery, did you know there was a sea in the temple? This is one of the ways that it's described. It's this big basin that uh, so you've got the altar, and then you've got this sea. And then you go into the tent. Both those were in the courtyard. And it was just this huge basin that was full of water and uh, made of bronze. And so it talked about this, this sea of bronze. Let's say in second Kings. And so if you think about it in those terms, okay, now you've got a sea of glass. Well, is the water itself like glass or is it talking about it? Like the bronze is now like crystal. And so you've got all the water is now in something that you can see through. 
And once again, this is where I say, and it comes back to the same thing. If you can see through the container itself, you can look right in there and see all that's going on. So God knows what's going on, what is obscure to us, and we can't quite tell, and so we get afraid. God knows, and he can see what's going on all the way through. This also gets us the same kind of thing with the creatures that have these six wings and covered with eyes. This has to do with they're ready to, ready to go, ready to move, and also that they are able to see what's going on. And who are these? What in the world are these crazy-looking creatures? So it says the first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Super weird, right? This takes us back to language from the Old Testament again, of uh, very specifically from Ezekiel, but also just in other places where the way that we divide up all of the creatures of the earth, we kind of have all these scientific categories. Well, then there were sort of four categories of these creatures on land anyway. And you've got those that are wild, those that are domesticated, you've got those that fly, and you've got people. And this is what this is, representing kind of the heads of all of those. And so these creatures are those that represent all of life on earth. And so what is it that they're doing? And what is it we've been created to do? Right? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the Westminster Catechism. (laughs) That that is the chief end of man. That's what we have been created for. That's what we've been created to do, to glorify God, enjoy him forever. So what is it that they are doing? Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. This is what they're doing. Representing all living creatures, giving glory and praise and honor to the creator. That's good, right? Yeah what things are supposed to be like. And it says that this is actually what is going on in heaven even now. And yet, and it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, remember them, representatives of all God's people, what do they do? The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. They worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This takes us back to the end of Job again, doesn't it? But at the end of Job, God has to come to Job and remind him, did you forget who I am? (laughs) You forget what I've done, that apart from me, none of this exists? Nothing. But here... The elders don't need these reminders. They recognize God for who he is. He is the one who has created all things. You created all things. By your will, they were created and have their being. So much of what we get wrong in this world is because we forget who God is. That it is in him that we live and move and have our being. Zach says, if you want to see more of kind of the Old Testament connections with these passages, you can look up Daniel 7, Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6. 
There's a lot in there on that. But here's what this is really getting us to, and this is why it's the heart of the whole thing, is the churches may be wondering if God is still on the throne or if he if the throne is empty and up for grabs and maybe everybody should, everybody should be fighting for that, the throne of the universe, or if uh, he is there, but he is not ruling over everything, maybe he's a smaller God, a tribal God, a local God. It's like, no, that's, he is there. He is powerful. He is over everything. And he is ruling even now. And he is the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and power. One of the other fascinating things is a lot of the language here comes from the Old Testament. Some of it comes from the way that people were talking about the Caesar of the day and the language they were using to him. They actually would refer to him as our Lord and our God. And in this vision, John says quite clearly, it's not Caesar. He is not the one who is worthy of our praise and glory and honor. He rules in a very limited sense, very limited in power, in scope, and in time. But God rules in a much more unlimited way, in power, in scope, and in time. He is the one who is worthy. And we will see next week how that ties in with Jesus specifically. And this is where I say this gets to the whole heart of everything. I want to leave you with something Jonathan Edwards wrote. He was pastor back in the 1700s. This is in the book Dynamics of Spiritual Life by Richard Lovelace. Highly recommend. It says, Edwards increasingly stressed that the core of the awakening was not an emotional experience, but a spirit-given apprehension of the reality of God, which purged the heart and led inevitably to a meek and lamb-like spirit and to an outflow of good works. Continuing, Edwards was especially concerned to make clear that fallen human nature is fertile ground for a fleshly religiosity, which is impressively spiritual, but ultimately rooted in self-love, high emotional experiences, effusive religious talk, and even praising God and experiencing love for God and man can be self-centered and self-motivated. In contrast to this, Experiences of renewal, which are genuinely from the Holy Spirit, are God-centered in character, based on worship and appreciation of God's worth and grandeur, divorced from self-interest. Such experiences create humility in the convert rather than pride, and issue in the creation of a new spirit of meekness, gentleness, forgiveness, and mercy. They leave the believer hungering and thirsting after righteousness instead of satiated with self-congratulation. Most important, their end result is the performance of works of mercy and justice. So what separates true spiritual awakening rather than false? Is it centered on who God really is or not? One of the Ten Commandments that we love to ignore is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. On six days that you're to do your work, but on the seventh day, we are to remember our creator. And we take that now and we go, well, yeah, but there's 
there is some yeah, but there. However, Jesus himself said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it is good for people to stop on a regular basis. That's actually what Sabbath comes from, seven and stopping all at the same time. To stop on a regular basis to remind ourselves who is the one who is on the throne. What is it that he has done? What is it that he is doing? What is it that he has promised that he will do? To reflect again and even together with others that we would praise and worship him. That not only our times of worship then would be God-centered, which, my goodness, they better be. (laughs) But that all of our lives would flow out of that. That everything we're doing would be God-centered. For he alone is worthy. And as we said before, this is what we were created for, is lives that are centered on praising, worshiping, and glorifying God. And we will talk more about this next week and as it relates to Jesus specifically. But for now, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, you are holy, holy, holy. And God, we are so easily forgetful. We find ourselves quick to doubt your goodness or to doubt your power or to doubt your love. And so we get thrown into fear and reactions that are not only not honoring to you, but they're not helpful to us either. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to keep this vision of your greatness, your holiness, your power, your love, and your rule as the king of the universe. Keep this before us. God, that we would live each day in light of who you are. That we would seek to be your people who are following you, who only rule at all in the areas that you have given us to rule as those who are ruling under your authority. Lord, help us in the areas that you have given us to lead and to serve, or to lead and to serve well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.